Good evening, everybody, and welcome back to Inking Out Loud. Today, Drew and I, and only Drew and I, are going to be discussing the first half of Crown of Swords, the seventh volume in Robert Jordan's The Wheel of Time series. I'm your host, Rob Santos, and I am joined, as I just said, by my co-host, Drew McCaffrey. Drew, what's up, dude? How's it going, everybody? And for now, I'm going to pass it off to you, my man, so you can give us a recap of what exactly we've read for this week. Yeah, uh, well, first off, I wish we had a little, like, time wonkiness in this book, since uh, you said good evening, everybody, and we're recording this in the morning, <laughs> yeah. and this episode is going live. You're right. <laughs> Normally, it's actually closer to evening by the time that we're recording this on my end here in uh, Ontario, yeah. yeah. But, uh, yeah, our, our schedule was a little little strange this week, so we had to get a much earlier start. But, yeah, uh, but yeah so A Crown of Swords, first half. So today we're going to be covering uh, the beginning of the book up through Chapter 21, Swoven Night. And that gives us, uh, you know, some especially pretty crazy stuff going on. Uh, I I kind of forgot how, how uh, hard this hits Epic. the ground running, you know. Yeah. Uh, obviously, we, we kick things off with uh, the aftermath of Dumai's Wells, where Rand is uh, struggling to kind of cope with what just happened to him. He, uh, he chooses a few Ashaman to accompany him as kind of his personal guard uh, going forward, including one Corlin Deshiva, which is an mm -hmm. interesting choice. Uh, and he and Perrin and the rest of their group uh, travel back to Kyrien, where they find that Colavir, at the behest of some of those Tower Aes Sedai, has usurped the throne of Kyrien uh, in a very short-lived coup. And Rand uh, strips her of her titles and exiles her, whereupon she decides she can't live with that and hangs herself. Um, Perrin and Rand uh, are kind of striking sparks. Uh, Perrin doesn't want to do what Rand wants him to do, namely go lead the armies in Ilion. And so uh, they, uh, they have some disagreements there. Meanwhile, uh, in Saladar... Egwene is sort of finding her feet, consolidating her power. Um, she is determined not to just be a figurehead, and with Swan's help, starts uh, maneuvering around, figuring out the uh, political currents in Saladar. She uh, rebuffs an attempted blackmailing by Nicola and Ariana. and in turn, Egwene blackmails uh, Nisau and Morel for what they're doing with uh, Lan and extracts oaths of fealty from them. And uh, she also has a brief meeting with the Wise Ones where she kind of realizes how the Wise Ones really feel about Aes Sedai at this point. And she asks them to uh, kind of tone it down <laughs> so yeah. that, uh, you know, there's a little more of an opportunity. She also tells them she will not send Aes Sedai to help Rand and she doesn't want Rand to know that she is the Amerlin. Uh, so that's that's kind of the Saladar wrap-up. And then lastly, we have the events of uh, the Ebudar storyline, where uh, Elaine and Nynaeve are trying to figure out uh, what they're looking for, and they meet with the Seafolk and find out about the Bowl of the Winds. Uh, the Black Aja are, are in Ebudar, as well as uh, Samael making a quick stop. The shadow is very present in the city, looking for a cache of Angreal and Turangreal. And uh, uh, Phaleon and Ispin are the Black Sisters there who are uh, interrogating and killing uh, wise women. And uh, meanwhile, Matt is trying to enjoy his time <laughs> in Abudar, uh, but is dealing with some 
some weirdness from Queen Tylen, as uh, as well as you know the ever-present scourge of Elaine and Nynaeve. Although he makes a new friend at the end of this sequence in Brigida. Yeah, he does. So then that's that's where we uh, left off was at the end of Swoven Night, where Matt and Brigida get drunk together. Yeah, yeah. What an intro to this. Well, not an intro. I should say what a first half of the book. But I, this is something I've been waiting to say since we started the beginning of the Wheel of Time. Actually, since we started this podcast, honestly. Book 7 of the Wheel of Time is really, really often um, underestimated in how strong Jordan's narrative voice is. Like, especially as he begins what he's what he has to tell in this book and i want to dive straight into the prologue and our style discussion here because there's a few things quite a few things actually i have to discuss about the prologue i think even more than i did for lord of chaos which had me you know waxing rhapsodic about that prologue uh if i remember correctly but he starts this one he being jordan like he did in the fires of heaven with another viewpoint from elida right uh-huh. We get this startling look at, like, her accelerating descent into madness. And, you know, she sends, first off, first off, she sends 50 sisters and, what was it, a 1,000, maybe 2,000 guardsmen to deal with the Black Tower. Might have uh-huh. been less than that. Might have been, like, 500 it, guardsmen. It's, it's fewer than that, yeah. It's, a, it's a, yeah. actually a pretty small group that she sends. <laughs> might have only been a couple hundred. Um, we see the magnitude of her, of her hubris. And she's like, she's commanding this lead architect to not only build her a palace, but one apparently as tall or the taller than the White Tower itself, mm-hmm. right? And then as the readers, as we're, we're sitting in there, we're getting comfortable with, like, the idea of, yeah, this bitch has finally lost her goddamn mind, like, entirely. Jordan chooses this exact moment to throw this foretelling at us, where Elida says, and I quote, the White Tower will be whole again, except for remnants cast out and scorned. Whole and stronger than ever. Rand mm-hmm. Althor will face the Emerlin seat and know her anger. The Black Tower will be rent in blood and fire, and sisters will walk its grounds. This I foretell. What a blow that we got from far left field there. And I wanted to get what you thought about that one, Drew, and how Jordan kind of chose to play with expectation. Yeah, so... I really don't remember uh, what my opinion of that was when I first read this book, because it was just so long ago. Right, yeah, yeah. Um, but my gut tells me that I I didn't totally buy it. It it felt a little wishful thinking on Elida's part, especially knowing what we did at the end of Lord of Chaos about how crazy the, uh, the Ashaman have gotten, how powerful they are now. And, in such a short time. You know, where, where Taim was able to bring, like, 200 Ashaman, maybe not fully trained, but certainly effective, to a battlefield after just, you know, a couple of weeks. And uh, it, it just didn't jive with this foretelling in the way that Elida frames it. And mm. Elida has already... Um, I, I remember this much, at least, that... She's had a few foretellings that we know about in the series so far, and yeah. she always misinterprets her foretellings. Her, uh, at, at least uh, to an extent. So her her kind of life-driving force foretelling was the one about how the royal family of Andor is the key to yes. the, last battle. the last battle. And when exactly. she had that foretelling, the Trekand house was not the royal family of Andor. It was uh, Mantear. Yeah, and, Mantear. And 
what that foretelling meant basically was like, look, this is where the Dragon Reborn is coming from. But Elida misinterprets that. And yes, Elaine and uh, like Gawain and Galad end up being important, but they're not like the key to the last battle the way right, Rand is the points. key. Yeah, exactly. and so we we know that she has a propensity for misinterpreting her own foretellings. And and she has this one, which comes at kind of like the height of her megalomania. And you're like, okay, this this really seems like something a little far-fetched. She must be misinterpreting it. You see, <clears throat> a lot like you, I, I don't, obviously I don't recall my first impression coming out of this uh, prologue or this scene in particular as we're discussing, because when I read it, I would have been 13 years old, maybe, maybe, maybe 14. Um <laughs> But I, I, I do want to say that I was already kind of on to Jordan in that manner because um, at this point, we still, like, okay, we, we knew that Elida had some big, big foretellings. We, I think at this point, already knew what that sort of meant, though, like her original foretelling about the royal line of Andor being the key to winning, or victory, I should say, in the last battle. At this point in Book 7, we already know about, like, Tigray. We already know about what happened there mm -hmm. and how Rand descended from that line. Um, at this point, though, we don't, really don't know what this foretelling is about because, I mean, this is something that happens in Book 13 for the most part. Um, also, and I will I will note this, the only concrete name that we get is Rand Althor during that foretelling. She doesn't say the Amerlin Elida. She says the Amerlin Seed. She says the Black Tower will be rent in blood and fire. The only solid concrete name, of course, we got was Rand Althor, and I think that played a big part in um, Elida's total <laughs> underestimation of what was going to actually happen, right? Mm-hmm. Definitely. Um, yeah. Um, but I also want to talk about a different scene in this prologue. Unless you, is there anything else about Elida you wanted to cover before we uh, fire for I, I do. Uh, I want to talk about her interactions with Alviar in here. Oh, with Alviar. Uh, because okay. this, is, yeah. this is really important going forward. This sort of, like... Uh, the development of this tug of war between the two of them and how this scene is like a major win for Elida. She has, she receives news that the mission was successful and Rand is captured. She has this foretelling that seemingly, you know, uh, predicts Elida's triumph. You know, Alviarn <laughs> is very shaken by this. But because of that, because the way their relationship develops, where there are these just dramatic events that shift the power between them, like, yeah. it escalates so much faster because of that. You know, because they're, they're, the blows to each other's ego are so big, you know? And this is, this is kind of one of those situations where I said I kind of arrogance plays a big part in it. These, these are women who are so used to being in utter control that when they lose control or when they're uncertain, they really lash out, you know? And we're going to mm. see that continuing going forward. Yeah, when they lose control, one would argue that you can actually get a uh, a greater glimpse of who they really are underneath all of that Aes Sedai calm and serenity. Mm -hmm. um, and with Alviar, and it's not a very not a very nice person, not a very pretty person. Um, but unless I miss my guess, uh, going forward, this prologue here... Uh, is the first time in the Wheel of Time series that we get to witness a scene that's already passed, but this time through the eyes of somebody else. And I speak, of course, of the Savannah yes. point of view, as she participates in the, or, or I should say, avoids participating in the Battle of Demise Wells. Am I right that we haven't had a scene quite like this in this style where we have 
something in the past, but we're watching it through somebody else's eyes right now. I believe you are correct. I can't think of anything yeah, off the top of my head, at least. The, this represents a whole new style of writing that Jordan and unfortunately in the opinion of many I've spoken to he gets a little too comfortable with particularly in the 10th volume for crossroads of twilight uh-huh um but i just wanted to, i just wanted to, to highlight that there and i wanted to make sure I, I wasn't wrong in thinking i think this is the first time we've had that in this series so I, I definitely wanted to run it by you yeah and and i think he handles it pretty well in this book and in a, in a couple mm. of others but like you said, not so much in Crossroads of Twilight, and that's something we'll we'll really dig into when we get there. Definitely. But yeah. but in this book, there are a couple of these scenes pretty early on. There's the obvious Savannah one, but also we get uh, the freeing of Magedion from Egwene's point of view, where uh, she feels the touch of a man who can channel on the Adam, and she's like, "Oh my gosh, you know what what is going on here?" And then she goes and investigates and and um. But but so things like that are are they're more interesting to us rather than jarring, the way some things in Crossroads of Twilight and Towers of Midnight are, uh, where you're like, whoa, that doesn't make sense, that doesn't line up, or whatever, um, or you're bored, <laughs> as is the case yeah. in Crossroads of Twilight, where you're like, I already know what happens. Uh, <clears throat> yeah. But, but here it's it gives us more information. It gives us like a, an interesting new perspective on on events. And especially with the case of Savannah, where this is such a, in a manner, a triumph for the good guys, where the Shido, who've been just a huge thorn in Rand's side for the last, like, two, three books, are broken, you know? And getting to see the, like, panic and the the confusion and the fear on, on the side of the bad guys is a fun reading experience for us, right? So it's, it's yeah. almost like a, this, like, vindicating thing. Robert Jordan getting getting the opportunity to write this perspective. Yeah, lens context, I suppose. Mm -hmm. um, another thing that Jordan did with this prologue, I'm still not done. I have two more points uh, that I want yeah. to discuss with you here. Um, another thing he did was uh, continue and end something uh, that he started in the last prologue with the man Pedron Nile. Uh -huh. And I have to say, honestly, this is one of the deaths in the Wheel of Time series that impacted me most on my first read-through. And it's, this is not because I found uh, Niall a particularly relatable or empathetic or even, honestly, even likable character, but because of how heavy and ominous this moment was. You know, Patron Niall is, or was, one of the five great captains and one of the most powerful and inf influential men in the entirety of the world. To see him slain like this with no warning. Right. And to see that... He he failed to protect this message was intimidating on the part of the reader. Yeah. And it's about this point in the series, I think, that Jordan is, you know, he's, he's really showing us. He says, you think you see where this is going, but boy, are you wrong. And I thought it was fantastic. What do you think, man? Uh, I agree. Uh, I do remember the first time I read this, I was shocked uh, by just yeah. like how, because Omerna was framed before this as kind of like a bumbling, ineffective, yeah. you know, idiot and yeah jordan set him up to be dismissed as a threat exactly. yeah and then he comes in and just kills him and then you find out immediately oh he was still a bumbling idiot and he was being manipulated and this was all you know the doing of yeah valda and asanawa and mm. uh and you're like oh man okay so niall just got totally played yeah so and it sucks because 
I, 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 I found him to be pretty cool. I Obviously, he had a few character flaws. A few. Namely, keeping more <laughs> gays, you know, his whole stance against the White Tower, his setting up of Randall Thor as not only a false dragon, but a, you're trying to unite nations against him. He was doing a lot of things that the, the reader, you know, obviously is not going to champion right. <clears throat> or, or root for. But still, seeing him slain like this, somebody who is as wise, somebody who is as sharp, and respected as Pedro Nile, just to get it, just to see this this out of left field um, assassination by Omerna. It was it was really really like I said before, and I'll say it again. It was in, an intimidating choice that Jordan made to throw that at his readers. I think, in, especially as a prologue, you know, that that really sets the scene um, for what he's going to be doing forward in this book. Um, but the last thing I wanted to talk about is another thing that Jordan does at the beginning of this volume. And this is something I, I very very briefly touched upon in Starsight, but I'm not going to get into spoilers, obviously. But this is when an author plays with scale. Our prologue starts with our big, behind-the-scenes, threatening big players. Like, we have Elida, we have Pedro Nial, and they're doing and they're saying very important things. But then we dive into chapters 1 and 2, particularly chapter 2. Where Jordan chooses to focus on the micro scale, you know, delving directly into our main characters, into the aftermath of, of Dumai's Wells. If we have chapter two, which as an aside, um, I actually made note to mention that chapter two of A Crown of Swords might be one of my favorite single chapters in the entirety of the Wheel of Time. Really? That's the Butcher's Yard, right? The Butcher's Yard, that's that one. It's focusing inwards on Rand and Perrin, and the scene that really sticks out to me is where Perrin finds Rand immediately after counting the dead maidens and he's memorizing their faces. Yep. And how it presents it as this flashback scene, the sequence, the, sh the sheer beauty of everything used to compose that scene was phenomenal. I do want to, and I will be touching more on this scene when we get to uh, to Perrin's character uh -huh. in our character discussion. Uh, yeah, I, I really agree, actually. Um, it, it's the sort of quiet writing. The It's not the big bombastic epic battles, you know, but it's something that I have started to appreciate more and more just in the last year. And I've started kind of seeking out more fantasy written like this. Uh, you know, it was part of the reason why I loved um, A Memory Called Empire, for instance. Uh, I loved the way Arcadia Martin could construct these sort of quiet, personal, intimate scenes with tense stakes for the characters that don't necessarily need big space battles or epic magic, you know, things like that. And then I read uh, a, another book this summer... Uh, a Shadow in Summer by Daniel Abraham, the first in the Long mm, Press yeah, Quartet. Mentioned. And that book, there's basically no action in the entire book, but it is phenomenal, and it's probably the best or second best book I read this year. Like, it's... Wow. It, and, and this scene reading in here reminded me a lot of some of the scenes in A Shadow in Summer and and how the stakes, the personal stakes for the, the mentality and emotions of our characters are highlighted and so beautifully written about. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. Uh, you want to jump into our character discussion? Sure. Um, start with Rand? Yeah, let's start with Rand. Cool. Uh, cool. Yeah, kick it off. Okay, so in the aftermath of Dumai's Wells, uh, I gotta say, Rand's character is already being tested again. Like, he really doesn't get a lot of downtime to relax. He starts off in a lot of... I wrote down, I called it spiritual pain. Mm -hmm. You know, coming to terms with how many men, and particularly women, obviously, being Randall Thor, being from the two rivers, raised as he was, just died for him. But on the flip side, we get to see some of the strongest power plays that he ever gets at the beginning of this volume. There's that whole 
like cupping Alana's chin. Yeah. Heal me, you know. The entire dethroning of Colaver, just reaching up, grabbing the crown, breaking it with one hand, reforming it with one power as a point of like intimidation. Yep. Laying her unconscious form after she faints across the ground in front of the throne. That symbolic imagery, I was just wow. As hard it is as it is to see Rand like this, this is some of my favorite Rand that we ever get to see in the entire series, dude. What did you yeah, think? Yeah, that particular scene with Colvier where Rand comes in and just like the <laughs> shock. They're like, oh crap. Like, and then yeah. Rand is so just like confident, ruthless. He's like, you, you yeah. messed up. And I'm gonna yeah. show you just how badly you miscalculated here, and uh, and yeah, like you said, I mean the the imagery of breaking the crown and remaking it, and then like holding court with her unconscious body right there, like it's it's so great. It's a masterful scene on on the part of Robert Jordan. Oh, absolutely. Oh God, um, everything about that scene was just so the the, the tension. That, that tension that you could feel, not just through the page, but in my case, I was listening to the audiobook at work again. The tension that it's just palpable. It's, you, can, you can see that scene, you can encapsulate it in your head, you can picture it, and it's just so dead quiet in that room. And I think uh, carrying off this scene, as he did, from Perrin's point of view, was masterful. Because... Perrin has added context that the rest of our characters at this point aren't going to have. Mm -hmm. He can smell emotions. Yep. Right? Um, granted, <clears throat> a lot of the narrative is tainted by his worry for Fail, which I'm just so, so done with already. So done with already. And, and going forward, I'm not excited for. Right. Um, <clears throat> but it was really, really cool still. Um, and let's see here. Uh, going on with Rand's character. Sorry, I just got lost in my notes here. Um, uh, oh, oh, yes. Jordan continues to test Rand, though, and this is something I've been so excited to get into, particularly in the first half of Crown of Swords here, the introduction of Katsuwane. Or Katsuwane. How do you pronounce that one? Did you just say Katsuwane? Katsuwane. It sounds like Japanese, doesn't it? It's Katsuwane. Um, I think the audiobooks do both of them. Okay, I'll really? go with Katsuwane. The audiobooks say Katsuwane? I'm uh, Katsuane, but I'm not. Hold on, don't quote me on that. I, I what? Feel like I've heard that before. Pat, Pat is shaking his head at that. He, he's saying oh, they do not I like, say I, that. I, I like the two syllable. I've version listened more to than the, the audio books and they always oh, say Katsuane. <laughs> do they really? Where have I heard Katsuane? I have no idea. I don't know. Anyway, um, <laughs> no, four, uh, two syllables, not four. Let's go with that. Yeah. Uh, but she tests his patience and she's testing his arrogance. You know, and, and Rand is like, he's totally left reeling from this encounter. And then in comes Adrian Tarson mm -hmm. to break the news about what happened to Herod Fell, you know? Wow, what a bummer. Yeah, and then uh, and then Rand and Min get it on. <laughs> yeah, so that's something I, I wanted. This, that's my last wrapping up point for Rand's character here. I wanted well, to say also, Rand, congrats on the sex, yeah. <laughs> right? But there's something I noticed during the writing of these notes that we haven't actually acknowledged yet, Drew. I want to say congrats, Min. Yeah. You know, and for that matter, since we forgot, congrats, Avienda, because so often it seems like those of us wielding penises yeah. sometimes forget <laughs> the other side of this exchange, right? Right. Yeah, I mean, it, especially because so many of these scenes are from, like, Rand's point of view or Perrin's point of view. Mm. It, it's it's easier for us to identify with, like, the current point of view character than, you know. But, yeah, that is a, a really good Absolutely. point. Uh, but I do have one <laughs> more uh, thing I just wanted to bring up with Rand, and... And that is cool. how, even though 
I like a lot of the things that Rand is doing in this section. I like, you know, he's, he's really badass. He's got some cool things he does with Colavir and stuff like that. He's also a huge jerk to Perrin. Yeah. And he, he, he is. He really is. You know, like his his insistence, his hounding of Perrin, like you you need to go to Ilian, you need to go to Ilian, all this stuff. Like it's it's definitely frustrating seeing Rand. Like, this is probably where I have the most criticism of Rand in in how he uh, acts as a leader, where, where he just, he he's acting like naive here almost. Like, he's trying to browbeat people into doing what he wants them to do. And, uh, huh. and... I'd consider it. Yeah, it's... And it's not something I think you can write off as, like, oh, the madness, like you can do with some of the later things Rand does. Uh, this is just Rand not really knowing how to properly act in his his role as a ruler. And he is learning still. I mean, he had to learn some harsh lessons about that in Lord of Chaos with, like, Mangan, for instance. Uh, mm. But he still doesn't have a full grasp of how to properly interact and delegate, uh, you know, tasks with his closest supporters and advisors and generals and things so that's frustrating to me yeah i was definitely frustrated with with rand quite a bit and i was really championing uh championing perrin during their confrontation mm -hmm. you know over what's going to happen to the eyes to die i was i was cheering him on there perrin looking him in the eyes and telling him no i'm not going to let you do this i'm not going to let you hurt them and rand is pretty much calling his bluff like you're gonna get in my way and perrin is like oh absolutely you better count on it there, bud. Yeah. You know, it was uh, it was really, really important for both of those characters that they set those boundaries with each other. They have, they grew up together. They have been friends. They've been in the ship together since day one. But at the same time, they have diverged so much as people that set, like establishing where these dividing lines are is very, very important going forward. Not only for their relationship, but with how Jordan's going to treat them going forward as well. So I, I wanted to say, I just wanted to, to to nod my head there towards that scene. That was uh, that was tough to read, but it was really really I don't know. I guess I'll say breathtaking. That was a that was a cool scene. Yeah, yeah. So uh, let's move on to uh, Egwene. Egwene. Okay, I actually didn't write anything down about Egwene this time around. Oh, I was already boy. getting frustrated with her. Okay, it sounds like you have enough for both of us, my friend. Let's get it on. Yeah. Get it off. Let's get it started. This, it you know, this is where, like, there is a hard turn in Egwene's character development. Where yeah, I figured you were going to have something to say about... Actually, I think I know where you're going. Sorry, go ahead. Now that she's Amerlin, and she is determined to be an Amerlin, not a figurehead. And, and there is nothing wrong with that. That is, like, that's an admirable choice. Like, it would be very easy oh, no, for her no. to just buckle yeah. under and be like, all right, well... I'm in a terrible position. I guess I got to just roll with the blows. No, she doesn't do that. She's determined and she uses the resources around her to, uh, to, you know, help her kind of solidify power. But, and this is a huge but, what she does in this section with extracting oaths, she blackmails yes. Nisau and Morel into swearing fealty to her. And this is an yeah. unbreakable oath because these are Aes Sedai who have sworn on the oath rod. Now, like, stow that in your back pocket because 
for the gathering storm perhaps? oh for way more than the gathering storm oh most okay. of the outward facing policy decisions Egwene is going to make as Amerlin of just the Saladar contingent are purely predicated on how wrong it is for other people to do exactly what Egwene just did. Yeah, that's a, that's that's a whole big part of her argument against Elida later in the series. And Rand. Spoilers. Yeah. And oh yeah, I hadn't considered that part of it too. I'm only considering it like her direct struggle against the, the opposing mm -hmm. Avalon, the one in the tower, you know? And of course, she condemns Elida for just yep. that. She's like, you have sisters swearing to you and not to the throne? That is so terrible. How dare you? Shut the fuck up, Egwene. Yeah, just... and, and oh, like, it's... Uh, <laughs> this, this is where Egwene really, really, really starts getting on my nerves. Like, there are things she does in the earlier books. I mean, like, I went on the huge rain and Fires of Heaven, things like that, that, like, mm -hmm. like... Some pretty pretty bad things she does, but they're intermittent. They're not just like a constant stream of things. I mean, you you think about how some of our more recent episodes, like on uh, Lord of Chaos, I was saying like I enjoyed reading about Egwene there. I I didn't have any problem with her there. Stuff in like uh, uh, the Dragon Reborn, I thought she was sort of, you know, she's being catty, but she had a point, you know, for how she was interacting with Nine Eve at points, and you know, and and things like that where. I, I'm not consistently frustrated with her as a character until A Crown of Swords and going forward. And it is in large part due to her, uh, the foundations she lays in this book for a whole bunch of hypocrisy going forward. A whole bunch of hypocrisy going forward. I don't think I could have stated that any better myself. Yeah. Yeah. So... <laughs> That said, it, it is also, like, amusing, you know, there's a lot of dramatic irony in, in these Egwene chapters, in the Saladar chapters, where they're trying to figure out, um, uh, like, what happened with Magedian, and and they're like, oh no, there's a, a male channeler, you know, who did this, and they're, like, investigating, they're like, did anybody see anybody around that, in around Merrigan's tent, and a couple of people are like, I, I saw Halima! You know, yeah, yeah. but the men they totally would notice. Hopefully. Yeah, right. They're totally not important. And uh, oh my gosh, it's just like it's right there. But of course, we know it's right there. But nobody would yeah. ever expect a woman to be channeling Saidine. As far as they know, it's not even possible. Like, you know, so it's it's yeah. Robert Jordan dangling this juicy bit of irony out there for us, and uh, thumbing his nose. Out yeah. Us. From 20, 25 years in the past. Yeah. So, but but I think that's it's kind of the Egwene that I needed to get off my chest. And and again, we'll we'll address that in future episodes when it comes back up. Yeah. But uh, I I want to just briefly touch on Nicola and Ariana and yeah. uh, how yeah. obnoxious they are. Uh, I didn't like them from the get go. Uh, the very first time I read The Fires of Heaven and met them, I was like, I just, like, I'm not fans of them. Okay. And then they just get so sure, much sure. worse here. Uh, I had hopes for Nicola when I first read this. I was like, I could see her, like, maybe having, like, a good character shift, and she just does not. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah. So, that that's the end of my, like, Saladar group uh, notes. Uh, and I think that brings us to Ebudar. Okay, I was actually going to discuss Perrin before we move oh, on. Oh, oh, you want to talk Perrin more? Okay. 
Yeah, yeah, no, I, sorry, I, I did mention Perrin briefly, but that, that was more in context with his interaction with Rand. I haven't really had a chance to discuss Perrin himself and why I'm getting a little frustrated. Okay. You know, um, right here in Chapter 1, there's a moment, and it might be the first moment where Perrin does something that truly pisses me off. <laughs> and I've been pretty sympathetic, I think, towards Perrin up until this point. Um, but I, I think there, there comes a moment... Okay, so there's, a, there's this moment when... Aram, the tinker turned lost puppy turned pseudo blade master, um, <laughs> who he just nonchalantly suggests that the Aes Sedai captives should be murdered. To which Perrin just responds with more or less, "Shut up, Aram." Yeah, <laughs> you know, like really, Perrin, no digging, no admonishment, no reason. No wonder this guy goes dark. Like this, this, this here is the moment, Drew. This is the moment where I think where Perrin really fucked up with Aram. This is his chance to notice that Aram was wandering from the path and, and to correct him. But because of this massive blind spot he has with everything when he thinks Fael is in danger, he doesn't deign to notice. He just dismisses this problem entirely. What do you think, man? Yeah, so I think what what it comes down to with Perrin here is that he... Because he has his particular struggles... Uh, leadership being chiefly among them, where he doesn't see himself as a leader. Uh, the flip side of that is he doesn't see himself as a role model, and he totally is a role model for Aaron. Absolutely. And, and you know, and I'm you know I kind of argued uh, uh, for Perrin, you know, for the benefit of Perrin earlier yeah, that like yeah. Aram isn't Perrin's responsibility. Yeah, I think it was Jared and I who were thinking, oh, he might be a little bit, though, but you made a good case um, that he probably isn't, really. He's, he's not his responsibility, but he does have some responsibility. Like, he he's so unaware here that, like, like you know, he, he doesn't need to babysit Aram or anything like that. But when you have moments like this, these teaching moments, like you said, it does behoove Perrin to you know, step in and, and straighten Aram out. Because clearly Aram is, is uh, like you said, like going off the deep end here. He's like, yeah, let's just kill him. Like, and, and that's something that mm. even though Perrin is avoiding leadership and, and is sort of unaware of the demands of leadership upon him, this is something that is so antithetical to Perrin, the idea of just like killing relatively harmless women. Uh, you know, like prisoners, helpless women. I think that's the part. Yeah. Is it's helpless women? Right? Yeah, like it's it's such an a not parent thing to do that he should recognize and and correct. Right? Like you, that's the natural thing. Like you don't just say yeah. no, we're not doing that. You say, whoa, dude, what the hell? No, of course we're yeah, not going to do that. Let's investigate. Let's let's figure out why the hell he said something like this. Let's explain to him why that is so fucked up. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. But no, it's just, it's just like, yeah, uh-huh, okay, shut up. But I have more important things to be thinking about. Mm -hmm. you know? It's like, oh my god, Perrin. Perrin, 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 Perrin. There, there comes a moment later, I think it's in Knife of Dreams, when, when Perrin is internally thinking about Aram and how he... No, it might have been actually in the Sanderson uh, trilogy at the end there, where he's thinking about Aram and how all, all of the mistakes he made. And I, I remember my first read-through at that point going, what are you talking about? Why do you have to take responsibility for everybody else's screw-ups? But no, actually, if I think back to moments like this... Aaron should have felt bad. He did have a reason to feel guilty. Yeah, I, I mean, there's there's reason to feel guilty. Um, yep. 
Not to say it's entirely his responsibility. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But, but it, it, yeah, he definitely has a few things to atone for. And and I will say, like, as Perrin continues to struggle with the fact of his leadership role, uh, I do think that while I'm frustrated with Rand and how he approaches Perrin, trying to convince him, like, just telling him, like, dude, you're you're going to Alien, and Perrin's like, nope, no, I'm not, you know. Uh, I think they're both kind of off base here because if Perrin could come to grips with his role a little more as as like an important leader for the forces of the light and and what his Taviran nature is, he would be more amenable to doing this. You know, he would be he would be more prepared to say, "All right, Rand, let's work together and figure out a way that we can like you know make this work." Rather than... Oh, I bet Fahil would be on board. All Rand has to do is approach Fahil with that. I'm sure she'd jump at the chance to watch Perrin lead tens, if not hundreds of thousands. Oh, of yeah, yeah. And and even though, you know, Perrin wouldn't actually be, like, leading them into battle because, as we know with, like, the, the retrospect of having read these books before, that that whole huge giant army in the in the plains of Moreto is, is a fake-out. Rand yeah. just wants Matt or Perrin there joke. because he wants Samuel to be convinced that that's where the hammer is going to fall, not with what Rand is working on with Bashir. So. Exactly. And uh, uh, so, I still have one more thing about Perrin I want to talk about. Actually, before I get into that, though, I did, I did want to mention this one positive thing I have to say on the front of Fael. Um, I'm pretty sure this happened. This had to have happened in this part. Yeah, sorry. This is. I'm thinking back like four weeks in my listening to the audiobook here. There's that scene where Perrin just sort of enters uh, Perrin. Rand enters yeah, Perrin yeah. in rooms. <laughs> and then, you know, uh, Perrin has to break. I think he was, breaks away from the kiss. Uh-huh. And, and, and Fael looks. She just glares down the dragon reborn. She says, I apologize, my lord dragon, for not hearing your knock. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I just had a giddy little clapping, squeaking glee moment there. I was like, yes, yes. Somebody take him down a couple pegs, man. Somebody yeah, yeah. go fight you. I was actually totally on board with her. Yeah, right? that scene, that just everything around that scene is sort of the epitome of where I was frustrated yeah. with Rand in this book. Yeah, you get to see him all, you actually get to see Rand discomfited a uh-huh. little bit. Discomfited. Yeah. Discomfited. Yeah. Thank you very much. Because um, he just kind of shuffles his feet and he's like, oh, sorry. That's, yep, that's on me. This might be. Sorry, yeah, guys. yeah. You know, um, but there's another really cool thing I noticed from Perrin's point of view this time around. I briefly touched on it earlier during our discussion of the the first chapter here, or the second chapter especially. But uh, for the first time, um, I, okay, so Perrin is smelling Rand's emotions, uh-huh. right? And he's unnerved by how quickly these emotions are changing, flashing from one to another in rapid succession. And I originally took this thought as, you know, okay, yeah, nobody's emotions change that quickly. You know, yeah, Rand's going crazy. But it wasn't until now that something else occurred to me. Um, I considered he might be first smelling Rand's emotions and then in rapid succession smelling Luz Theron's emotion. And I wouldn't have thought of this unless we had just discussed in our last episode in Lord of Chaos 3 about Marana reading Rand's note before leaving Camelin. Mm. And I, I thought, oh, there's, there's a possibility that she got a glimpse of Luz Theron's handwriting. You know, this isn't so much a point about Perrin as it is just a cool thing to notice from his point of view. Yeah, um, that's something I've never like even considered before. Yeah. That is really interesting. Yeah, he, isn't that like so terrifying to yeah. consider? Not only is Marana reading, not only is Rand's handwriting showing his and starting to show Luz Theron's handwriting bleeding through, but now 
like Perrin is also smelling, potentially smelling, if that's what's happening here. He's smelling Rand's emotions and Luz Theron's. Right, yeah. That's just creepy. It is. Man. Yeah. So that's everything I had to discuss with Perrin. Okay. Well, let's let's move to Ebudar. And let's let's okay. talk Matt. Matt. My man. Uh I love uh Matt in this book. This is where Matt really becomes his own character. He becomes my absolute favorite character. Uh, When he's now completely out of Rand's shadow, he's doing his own thing. He has his own agency now. And he's just so much freaking fun. Like, (laughs) and the way Robert Jordan writes his chapters, where, where we go back and forth from these, like, amusing, almost whimsical, like, oh, we're at the races and gambling and things like that, to, like, oh, crap, there's Millie Skane. Like, you yeah, know... there she is. And 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 then, oh, Jakeem Carradine is here and has, like, a cohort of dark friends with him. And, you know, and then we switch points of view and Samael shows up and you're like, oh, my gosh. Like, R- Matt is trying to just enjoy himself in Ebu Dar, but all of this crap is about to come crashing down he on him. He is still Taviri. Yeah, and then... Doesn't matter. And then it moves from that to him going to the palace and dealing with freaking Thailand. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Yeah. And then. Yeah, yeah. And then it moves back from that to him going to the Wandering Woman. And uh, I just want to point out one of my all time favorite lines Robert Jordan ever wrote. And I'm going to read this because I have the quote here. When he walks into. Uh, the the wandering woman. Harnan, a lantern-jawed Terran file leader with a crude tattoo of a hawk on his left cheek, was berating Coravin. Don't care what the flaming fish seller said, you goat spawn toad. Use your bloody club and don't go accepting flaming challenges just because he cut off when he saw Matt and tried to look as he had not been saying what he had. <laughs> like, I yeah. I love the language. I love the like. Uh, you know the the interplay between them, and then Matt's like, if Matt asked, it would turn out Corvin had slipped and fallen on his own dagger or some such foolery. Matt was supposed to pretend to believe, like, <laughs> and so he just ignores it, doesn't even address it. He's just like, uh, you know. <laughs> how how insane is this goddamn city? I, 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 again, this is a point that I made several episodes ago now about how every consecutive city. That our or some of our main characters travel to just just gets more and more and more dangerous. Yeah, <laughs> uh, not just with like unrest, but just with 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 society itself and and the way they comport themselves in everyday life. It's it's insane. Like we have Bestland, yeah, who is feeling really pissed off when he first meets Matt. He's all grumpy when he's talking to his mom because he could just got into a knife fight. He just had to kill a man, and now he's got to you know pay dues to the man's wife. And it's just like. What are these people? What, what are they living in? This, this is a man who just got killed by a knife in his in his adult years. He's probably he's got a wife. We know he's got a wife. Mm-hmm. He's probably got children and stuff like that. But because of what I assume to be one wrong look at one wrong time, this man lost his life. That's just I don't understand how these cities managed to thrive as they have been when so many people are just well, knifing each other to death in the streets. I to that point. Ebudar hasn't been thriving, and Altara has not been thriving. Well, the, you know, well, like I mean, this, I 
they still have hundreds of thousands of citizens. They have a throne, although they don't really control much land. The Rahad is is, is a disaster. Say, yeah, really like, point. but but and also to that point, Ebudar, at least in my opinion, is by far the most insane city. Like, like there's none of the other Camelin, Kyrian, Tyr, Ilian, like you know, Farmatic. None of them, none of them even approach the level of insanity going on in Ebudar. <laughs> like, yeah. it's uh, I, yeah. You, you give me a choice of one city in the Wheel of Time that I do not want to live in. I would live in goddamn Arid Hall. I would live in Shadar Logoth before I would live in God in, in, in Abu Dar. Like, are you serious? I mean, I I wouldn't go that far, but but oh, no, I know okay. I yeah, know what you mean. Like, but... I would easily live in like Tanchico, you know, or oh, or Tyr or yeah. Kyrian before I would step foot in Abu Dar. Live in Tyr. Upper class, though not in the not in the mall. No, I, I would live in the Mala instead of. Why would instead you, of you want to Ebudar? Damn. Yeah, instead yeah, of Ebudar, though. Yeah, yeah definitely. So um, so what, where are we? We got way off track there. Uh, so Matt, oh, Matt, yeah, Matt. Um, it, it's everything. Sorry, go ahead. Well, there's kind of like the three three sections of what's going on with Matt in this section of the book. Where we have we have the Matt adjusting to like the culture and life in Ebudar. We have Matt and his interaction with uh, the Dark Friends, and then we have Matt and his interactions with the women around him, right? Mm. And I I think where a lot of people get frustrated with this book is in the women side of things. Uh, Thailand is a major part of that, of course, and. And uh, how obstinate Elaine and Nynaeve are up until Swoven Night about Matt. And, and yeah, I mean, we're like yes. the, I think it's the next chapter we're going to read for the next yeah, episode so. is when they're finally going to come to terms and come to the grips with Matt. But, yeah. but you know, that's, that's you know, something we'll leave for next episode. But leading up to that, it is very frustrating being in Matt's head and dealing with these people around him even though I think it's Absolutely. still a hell of a lot of fun to read from Matt's perspective, you know? Um, yeah, and, and I wanted to say this is a perfect spot for me to, to confess this, but pretty much everything I wrote about... I had a, a few points that I wanted to discuss about Matt's character, but I can't... turns out I can't say them because I hadn't realized that I had already gone on one chapter past our stopping point. Oh. And I had a lot to say on Matt's front in chapter 22, but we actually stopped at chapter 21, so I'm looking at, like, three different points here that I'm just like, well, I guess I'll just save it for the next episode. And so, honestly, on the front of Matt, I have nothing to say right now. Okay. Well, uh, I'll, I'll just continue on then and, and address kind of the yeah. Dark Friends situation in Ebudar. Um, <laughs> I loved his little chase you know, trying to yeah. to track Millie Skein and White Plumes, and yeah, the, he's he's forced to stop and buy a signet uh, ring, and not just a signet ring, but some the some pretty uh, uh, shocking symbolism on that signet ring. Yeah, a fox making two ravens, uh, like chasing two ravens into the air with nine crescent yeah. moons around it, like <laughs> yeah. Oh, I did. I didn't pick up on the nine crescent moons. Yep. Oh my God! <laughs> oh, Jordan, you. Oh, well, yeah, and and that plays in later on with the uh, the foretelling that Tuan is given, you know, with the beware the fox that makes the ravens fly, you know, like. <gasps> oh, it just clicked. Because she sees his signet ring, 
Yeah. Yes. Um, <laughs> but yeah, th- this whole this whole kind of like chase not chase thing with Millie Skane, and then we see uh, Noal for the first time uh, yep. out front of Jaakim's house, palace, whatever you want to call it. Um, and then of course Matt is attacked uh, later on by a- another dark friend. Um, you know, they're the tendrils of the shadow are really, really creeping into Ebudar, and Matt is, of course, as Taviran, inadvertently at the center of it all. And blissfully unaware. Blissfully unaware. At the moment. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. But, but let's... <laughs> Millie Skane. Yeah. Uh, or, or the yeah, Lady Shiane, if you will. The Lady Shiane. Yeah, I haven't really put those two together until I had read it. read it a few times, but I really liked how Jordan approached... Matt trying to f- place her in his memories. Like, why does she make me think of a dagger? And hey, fire? What's yeah, that? yeah. And he's trying to think of like, oh, it must be one of these memories in my head from from you know other men's lives. But as we know, <laughs> with this dramatic irony here, we've already figured it out long before Matt has. But of course, he figures it out pretty quickly. Uh huh. But I thought that was pretty cool. Like Jordan bringing back a character who we had just obviously written off as okay, well, we'll never see her again. You know? Right. Uh, well, let's let's so, move yeah. on to the Wonder Girls. Okay. Because uh, I actually have some like fun things to say about them in this one. Uh, All right, let's get started. While while they're um, uh, uh you know, uh, how do I put it? Like, while their attitudes toward Matt are still frustrating, uh, their own activities in this are a lot of fun, uh, and I especially like how. Uh, Nynaeve ends up in this. Uh, she really gets taken down a couple of pegs, you know? And then Elaine and Avienda uh, are, like, it's kind of fun seeing their friendship, like, building. and uh, Progress, yeah. And, sure. and then, I mean, Avienda in particular, I love the scene where they, they go see the sea folk. And Avienda's just like, what the hell? Oh, and then the sea folk are yeah. all like, what the hell? You know, and <laughs> they yeah. have everyone's like, yeah, what the hell? They, they all have these wildly incorrect impressions of the the cultures, the the relative cultures there, and like, oh, it, tons of fun. Um, Yo, I hadn't actually considered it that way. Yeah, the Aiel are like the exact opposite of the sea folk. Yeah, <laughs> you don't have two cultures more different than those. Yeah, two. exactly. <laughs> Um, yeah, and then we get to see some of the first, like, strange effects of the female warder bond between Elaine and Brigida yeah. here, where Elaine is getting drunk because Brigida is getting drunk with Matt, and, uh, <laughs> oh man, and like, that that whole scene on Swoven Night right at the end there where, uh, they're like all hanging out in the room together, and Elaine is just acting like super hammered. Yeah, she's just like, <laughs> <laughs> oh man, yeah. uh, that that whole that, really that whole Swoven Night chapter is just great. I mean, the scene with Matt and Brigida, for one thing, you know, speak yeah. we what language, sounder of the horn, you know, oh. and then Matt has this like unfolding awesome. of memory. And, uh, yeah, oh, I love that. They, they agree to keep each other's secrets. So that, that's some pretty cool stuff. They, uh, the start of... I, I did write this down here, I guess, on Matt. I can I can briefly mention. The start of... And I'll, I'll call it a bromance, obviously, uh, between Matt and Brigitte is just... I, I have so much greatness going forward. And I really, I really wish 
I mean, knowing what I know going forward, I really wish we had had more of this. Yeah, uh, we get a couple of scenes with them in this book, but really not a whole lot because, of course... A little more in Towers of Midnight. Uh, yeah, like, you know, Brigida leaves with the rest of them in Path of Daggers. But we, we do get the one scene where they're like, uh, um, uh, uh, like drinking at the little bar while watching, you know, in, in the second half of the book. They're drinking together and, like, oh, yeah, scoping yeah, yeah. out, like, attractive or not attractive uh, yeah. women or men, respectively. Like, <laughs> yep. Matt just has to look towards the ugliest guy in the room, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It's like, hey, check that one out. <laughs> Brigitte, what a character. Yeah, tons of fun. But but this particular scene, though, I love their... I mean, Matt has the the memory, right, you know, of, of the sounding of the horn and and seeing all of the uh, the heroes coming down the, the yep. clouds. And, and I love... I love their conversation. Some of these lines, you know, like, uh, <laughs> you know, they're, he's like, you know, I weary of secrets, Brigida, and they harbor secrets as a grain barn harbors rats. You know, they become eyes to die, eyes and hearts. Even my knave is twice a stranger now. And she says, you have your own secrets. For one, you've not told them you blew the horn of Valir, the smallest of your secrets from them, I think. And he goes, what secrets do I have? Those women know my toenails and dreams. And she goes... Uh, you have the wrong end, Horn Sounder. I do not command them. Blah 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 blah. And as for your secrets, what language do we speak, Horn Sounder? And he just like yeah. stops and realizes what she said. No sane iro gavane domorakoshi dienyan dema porvine. Speak we what language, Sounder of the Horn? The hair on his neck tried to stand, and he's just like, yeah. oh, <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> what are you bloody yeah. well laughing at now? <laughs> like. Oh, it's so great. Yeah. She's like, but you, one sentence, you're an Eheroni high prince, and the next a first lord of Manapurim. Yeah. Accent and idiom perfect. No, don't worry, your secret is safe with me. Like, I love that. <laughs> I love that so I much. I love that somebody is around in Matt's life and his immediate vicinity to appreciate how badass he doesn't want to admit he is. Yeah, like, oh, so much fun. Just so much fun. Yeah. Yeah. So, but but that's I think that's about the end of my character notes uh, for this I, segment. I just wanted to talk about Cad Swain real quick and what she means. Her introduction. Okay. There. Um, I was originally going to say this for my miscellaneous impressions, but you know, I think I was I'm excited enough about Cad Swain here that I think she warrants a bit of brief discussion. She re- represents to me the biggest 180 I have ever done, perhaps with any character by any author, <laughs> in terms of how I regard them. Because I used to hate Cat Swain. I hated her with a passion. I hated her almost as much as I hated Fayil. I wanted her to die at every other page she was in you uh-huh. know, when I was originally reading this for the first time. But now I love this character. Really? And I think it was a real stroke. I, I, I think it was a stroke of genius on Jordan's part to give us a character like this. Someone who isn't particularly powerful in the current, and I say, I highlight again, current hierarchy of Chandler's because I know she is immensely strong, all other things considered. Um, but someone who is strong of a character and has a, who's made a legend of herself in her own right. Someone who's not going to take it from the Lord too arrogant for his own good, Randolph Orr. You know? Uh, so, um, I still massively dislike Cad Zwain. Even, like, for the rest yeah, of the series as yeah. well? You just don't like her at there all? Are, wow. There are moments where, like, I respect her and and I like I respect her oh, yeah. competence. Uh, she does some cool things with Semirod. I mean, yeah, perhaps? that was hilarious. Uh, but like yeah, and yeah, things yeah. like how yeah. she handles the cleansing and, and stuff like that. 
but it is that arrogance, that self-importance that she carries. And yes, Rand is also arrogant, but the way she approaches it is so not the right way. And I, one of my personal favorite scenes see, is I, when I she meets Tam in, when Tam dresses her down. Oh, okay. Like, right. You know, right. for being a bully. Right. Yeah. Like it, because she doesn't change after that. She doesn't, she doesn't stop trying to be a bully after that. So I still dislike Cad Swain quite a bit. Uh, I'm, I, I'm absolutely okay. She, she. I agree with everything you said, but I don't agree with what it means. I think like Cad Swain. Yes, she's she's arrogant in her own right. Yes, she's she's blatantly rude. But I think Rand needs somebody like that in his presence. He needs somebody. He doesn't want somebody like that around, but he needs somebody like that around. Uh, I think because we see him. With a lot, with a lot of very very concerning behavior that's creeping out of out of his. Oh, see, I I thoughts. disagree. I think she's making it worse, and and that's I mean, what we see him come to in the Gathering Storm is in large part because of how Cadzwain tries to handle him. It's not until he runs into Tam mm -hmm. that he changes because somebody took a right, different approach to him. Like Cadzwain, Cadzwain exactly keeps driving him Rain further and further over the edge instead of bringing him back. Mm -hmm. Which is what Rand needs. He needed that moment atop Dragon Mount. That's the point I'm making. Like, he doesn't like it, but he needs it. This is a mm. lesson that he needs to See, learn. I think if it wasn't I for Katsuani, he wouldn't have gone to Dragon well, Top or Dragon this Mount. This is a top, this is a whole he? conversation for like eight episodes from now. Yeah, I but, but no, I do not like Katsuani. So we'll we'll, we'll talk just, about her more as we go on. But I'd also wanted to just pay respect here to one of the greatest and most shocking character entrance character yeah character entrances and introductions of all time and fight me on this one. oh uh, great scene the way yeah. the way she strolls into that room and just walks right up to Rand he's trying to figure out who the hell this insane woman is and she just walks up and bitch slaps him yep that was so good and Jordan uses this line here, everything happened at once. You know, it really kicks off that scene. He use, he utilizes this narrative trick that I've highlighted before, particularly with Moiraine, um, to instill the strength of a character not by demonstrating it, which with Katsway, and he clearly hasn't had time to do yet, but in how everyone around them reacts to their presence. Anura Sedai, she's gasping. She goes, I thought you were dead. We have another I said I want to say it was Alana might have been Marana shouting no Catswain you can't hurt him you must not you know it's yeah. just ah uh, the way that everyone else reacts to her entrance is is part of what makes it so stunning and of course the, she Catswain managed to bitch slap Randall Thor before even speaking to mm -hmm. him that was amazing <laughs> I just liked it I re I don't know why. I, I don't know. It, it might be... No, it, it is a good, uh, you know, it is a good scene. It's you know, really, really powerful moment. Um, but yeah, so yeah. I, I will admit, I don't really have much, like, lore stuff to talk about in this segment. There isn't, you know, there isn't much, you know, deep, penetrating <laughs> uh, stuff going on here. <laughs> um, well, okay, I just wanted to get um, one quick clarification for you then on one question i had about Egwene's dreams this if there's anywhere in this in the episode to ask i guess this will be uh -huh. it. um so of course we, we get to this moment um where she dreams of a golden hawk and i wanted to get clarification on who precisely that golden hawk represents right um trying to like so that was during the scene when she goes and meets with the wise ones eyes. right 
the chapter Unseen yeah. Eyes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, oh man, I'm trying to remember the quote. Let me let me see if I can like find it. Um. It's like chapter ten or eleven. Ten. Okay, yeah, so it's a, a golden hawk stretched out its wing and touched her, and she and the hawk were tied together somehow. All she knew was that the hawk was female. Huh. Lylewin, perhaps? Uh, yeah, I mean, that would be my guess. That's where my, like, my mind goes to first. Uh, Why a hawk? I mean, the Shanchan tie-in, you know, the, the banner of Shanchan is, like, the hawkwing banner, like, Luther's banner. Okay, that's right, that's right. Um... But yeah, that's the only thing I can really think of that might fit. Because it's not Barrelane. No, no, no. I mean, maybe you could make an argument for Tuon herself. Sure. But I, I think Perhaps. I think Aginan makes more sense. Yeah, Aginan is probably... It's, it's the only one I could think of that makes some sense. Yeah. I hadn't considered Tuon, but... Uh, so, for any of our listeners, if, if you have a, a different idea, a better idea, you know... Comment on our... Uh, or if you know the answer, if we're just forgetting something entirely. Yeah, uh, comment on our <laughs> Facebook awesome page and, and let us know your thoughts. Yeah. Cool. Uh, I've got some miscellaneous thoughts to get out of the way here. Should I start? Sure. Okay. Um, just want to take a quick moment to laugh at Elida's plan for the Black Tower in the prologue. Uh, yeah, so right. I just went and like reread back through, and, and she sends 50 sisters and 200 soldiers. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah. Oh my God, that that would be like a like a like a gecko trying to attack a Tyrannosaurus. Rex. Yeah. Well, and and what it's even hell? funnier because in the actual scene when she's like, you know, send fifty sisters and a hundred of the tower guard. No, no, two hundred. As if it's like this. Yeah. Oh man, we're doubling the number of soldiers. Like you know, and, <laughs> and she has no idea that oh, there's like lied. hundreds of Ashaman and thousands of men in the Legion of the Dragon all gathered outside Camelin yep. right now. Like. Yep. <laughs> <clears throat> Uh, we finally got our first point of view from Moradin. Yes, we? we did. Did we have it? I can't remember. Did we have it confirmed what his name was yet at that point? I don't think no, we did. No, uh, we first get his name, I believe... At the end of Path of Daggers, I want to say. No, uh... With the board, he's playing the, uh... No, doesn't, doesn't he... There's the, um... Uh, there's the scene with Magedian where he comes and gets her out of the vacuole. In this book. Oh, after after the Corsuvra or whatever. The Mind Trap. Yeah, right? it's in this book, I'm pretty sure. Oh, okay. Um, oh! The... Oh, yeah, yeah, chapter 25 is called Mind Trap. And it's Magedian's point okay. of view and uh, and Moradin and Shidar Haran. Yeah. You know. But in this scene, from the, in the first half, with this one single scene we got from him, we didn't get his name, but we still have some context. First off, he's managing to spy on Samael and Grandal. Mm -hmm. And the Shadow Wise Ones, I mean, spying on the Forsaken, that's a feat in and of itself. But he also seems to have some context for what Samael is saying, how he, like, Samael implies that he is nameless after Grandal gets a little, little Yep, a little uppity. And then, the, and then the, un, the, uh, the unseen observer is thinking, okay, well, that's uh, a little arrogant and not correct. And you're just thinking, why, how, what does this guy do? Yeah, yeah. Right? Um, I laughed out loud at Loyal once again. Taking notes during Colavere's dethroning. Yep, I loved it. I love that little detail that he added, that Jordan added in there. Just uh, Loyal's still in the background, but he's still great every time. And, we get back and we can say for sure now, uh, we have a Loyal cast for the TV series. Yes, yeah, well, that, that just came out what three, four yeah, days ago. Yeah, so 
for sure the, the Ogier are not getting cut. Nope, they're not getting <laughs> and, cut, and I'm glad And for neither them. is Tom. Yep, yeah, who I was right about by the... Oh, Tom Maryland, sorry, I thought you meant Tam, Tom. No, okay. Um, yeah, I just want to point out, though, during our Wheel of Time casting discussion, I was totally right! All right, totally right that that Roos uh, Bolton is going to be Tamalthor. Uh, and I I gotta say uh, I thought he would be a great uh, Pat and Fane, but the guy they cast for Pat and Fane also oh he looks menacing. super creepy Ooh. like he he's like yeah. he's like got the kind of face that's like super friendly but just like the slightest change in it could be terrifying like that uncanny valley yeah. you don't know why you're a little uncomfortable right with yeah <laughs> yeah I like that I think they did choose well on that front. Um, let's see here, a couple more. Uh, yeah. Oh, we get the first time that Rand acknowledges the colors. Yes. When he's thinking uh, yeah. of either of his two Taviran companions. Very, very big for the for the series going forward. Apparently, they started sometime during his time in the chest. Uh -huh. Yeah, I I yeah. did pick up on that where he's like these these like flashing colors, and for some reason they remind me of Matt and Perrin. Like what? You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, I already mentioned uh, Rand cupping Alana's chin. Her blushing healed me when he, the way he just says it's so yeah. soft, like he's speaking to a lover. I don't know. That's like super oh. uncomfortable. Like, <laughs> really? I, I wasn't uncomfortable. I I was just like intimidated. I was like, God. Oh no! There's just damn. something about like that relationship between the two of them. Uh, like, yeah. The uncomfortable manner in how it began with her like essentially mind raping him and then like yeah mind raping and then anytime is, yeah. there's like a sexual undertone to what they do it just becomes more like ugh to me because of because really? of the foundation that it was I don't built know why. on I really enjoy the way that Jordan plays ugh. with that though because it's like you get to see another another side of the eyes to die with Alana who's young and she's fiery and she's she really doesn't have control over her temper right but uh mm -hmm. seeing her like kind of made uncomfortable seeing her being shut up by somebody else, you know, even if it is Randall Thor, I, I, I don't know, I kind of oh, enjoy those like, moments. Like, that <laughs> side of things, yeah, it's always, like, it's always interesting to see, like, an Aes Sedai sort of discommoded in, in that way, but the manner in which it is done, like, that, that, like, gentle touch on the chin, and, like, I don't know, it was just yeah. super weird to me. Hmm. Uh, to me, it just demonstrated a big power move, I, yeah. So... I don't know. Um, and my last point here, and this is this is this is going to be it's going to take me a minute here. Okay. Um, <clears throat> I just wanted to give another nod to Chapter Two, The Butcher's Yard, because uh, honestly, in my opinion, this is where the moment where Jordan demonstrated not his ability to foreshadow, because we he doesn't need to prove anything on that front at this point, or his ability to even set a spectacular explosive climax, but just his ability to write a beautiful scene, mm -hmm. hammerstroke. You know, the way Perrin yeah, thinks of the dead, yeah. his responsibility, hammerstroke, the imagery of the fresh graves and the Aiel custom of burying their dead upright facing the sunrise, hammerstroke. You know, you, you, if you get the time and you haven't already, set aside five to ten minutes and reread the beginning of this chapter again. And I have a quote here. To Perrin's eyes, the moon was nearly as good as the sun, but right then he wished for pitch blackness. Rand's face was drawn and twisted, the face of a man who wanted to scream or maybe weep, and was fighting it down with every scrap of his fiber. Yeah. <sighs> Jordan hit a note with those words right there that ripped my heart out of my chest. 
honestly. And I think going forward, this this stands to be a top contender for my favorite scene in the entire series. Yeah, wow. And it's one that's really, really underestimated and kind of swept under the rug that people don't really think about when they're listing their favorite scenes and when they're totally getting the chance to nerd out over everything epic in the Wheel of Time. Remember this scene, right. ladies and gentlemen. It was a... For, it was it was a master class in verbal dexterity. And once again, anytime I see people online being like, oh, Robert Jordan's not a very good writer, I'm like, you're just plain wrong. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I, yeah, you're, you, there's, there's, no, there's no arguing with stupid. Yeah. So uh, yeah. I, I do have one kind of concluding thought uh, before yeah. we get into the final draft, and that is the Forsaken are on the move. In these, just in these first, like, three chapters, we see Masana making some yeah. overt moves in the White Tower, teaching... Why am I hearing March of Mephisto in my head? By uh, right <laughs> nice. <laughs> right? Nice. Uh, but yeah, she teaches Alviarn traveling. Yep. Dashiva Osangar is on the scene now. We see Taim doing his thing. And then Samael in Ebudar. Like, the Forsaken are moving. Yep. Grandal is, and Samael, once again, are manipulating the Shido. Morden is hanging around. Like, we get... We yep. get a lot of scenes with the the surviving Forsaken yeah. right now. Yeah, yeah. We learned that Misana is in the White Tower. Yeah, yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. So, that that was kind of my concluding thought. Uh, but on that note, it sounds like a good time to move into the final draft. It does. That it does. I'll kick us off, I suppose. Do it. So I brought on a beer today. That is uh, one I mentioned actually in the last episode as perhaps the greatest, tastiest, I should say, the tastiest beer I've brought onto the podcast up to this point. And it actually did kind of work this week, thinking about, of course, um, uh, Cad Swain's lessons that she has eventually to teach Rand. And this is is good. Trust me, this, this, this does link, I promise, the fact that Rand hasn't lost his virginity, but he's taken that extra step with Min. Here. Keeping both of those things in mind, I have one, a white IPA here from a brewery called The Exchange. Okay. Um, this is a white IPA. Again, it says strong beer, 6.8% alcohol ABV. I'm sure you, you know, you've, you've probably even today got something stronger than that. But um, it's, I mean, this, this, this beer is just phenomenal. Everything out of The Exchange brewery is phenomenal. It's a little more bitter. This is a, the white IPA. Last time I was bringing on just the, the New England IPA. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, I mean, obviously being an IPA, all your bitters are there, your grapefruit's there. But I swear to God in this one, I'm tasting, I want to say it's banana. Uh, it could be. Uh, if if they have, like, a Belgian yeast strain in that, those can tend to produce, like, esters, uh, which sometimes can have, like, just, banana flavor. Bel- <laughs> I'm looking at the back right now, centered around big citrusy hops, classic uh, wit beer, spices yep. of orange peel and coriander, and fermented with our house Belgian ale yep. yeast. Mm-hmm. You nailed it. Dude, you nailed it. So, that's what I brought. I brought uh, a what the white IPA from the exchange. Nice. All right. And what was that called? It was just called. It's just called white, white IPA. IPA. Okay. So the exchange <laughs> was your. Uh, oh wait, hold on. Your I'm thematic. Looking at the, I'm tie-in? looking at the yeah. The exchange was my thematic okay. tie-in. Cat Swanee's lesson with Rand. There's an exchange going on there. Rand getting laid with Min. This uh, different, entirely different kind of exchange going on there. So. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, uh, today I brought in a beer from Ten Barrel Brewing Company in uh, Oregon. And uh, it's a really good brewery, by the way. If you ever see any of their stuff, they got a lot of of tasty beers. But this is a winter ale. 
And it, oh, what a winter yeah, ale! Yeah, winter ale. So it it okay. is very hoppy for a winter ale. Usually, when you get like a winter ale, winter warmer, uh, they tend to have like kind of Spicy, yeah, kind of a spice profile. Usually, spice, a little sure, maltier, sure. but this is very hoppy. It tastes almost more like a like an American red ale or something like that. Uh, but it's pretty good. It's a seven percent. Uh, you know, nothing like too crazy, but but something to warm you <laughs> up in the winter. And this is um, this is my ode to the group in Ebudar who are trying to find the bull of the winds and fix this endless summer. This beer is called Pray for Snow. <laughs> I like that. And <laughs> I mentioned this before on that exact same subject with them in Ebudar and what they're trying to accomplish. I have a beer that I cannot wait to bring on for Path of Death. Nice. It is perfect. It's it's perfect. Drew, it's perfect. Okay. It's almost as good as one key. Ooh, ooh, um, all right. All right. Uh, well, yeah, I think that brings us to the end of our episode covering the first half of I think it A does. Crown of Swords. This has been episode 46 of the Inking Out Loud 46. podcast. Next up, we will be going right back to the Wheel of Time and finishing up A Crown of Swords. If you want to get early access to that episode, check us out on Patreon, patreon.com slash inkingoutloud. Uh, in addition to early access, we have a couple of tiers. You can get our monthly newsletter. We do uh, short Patreon-exclusive episodes covering short fiction and uh, just general fantasy topics. Like uh, we had, as uh, Rob mentioned, an episode about wheel time tv show and casting and things like that we have a cosmere reading order episode and uh and yeah so if you if you appreciate what we're doing you want to support us check us out on patreon as always i am your host drew mccaffrey and with me is my co-host rob santos so so thanks for listening and we'll catch you next time bye everybody <laughs>